welcome uh, Elder Sai Stockwell. Well, good morning. Greetings to you from Pilgrim OPC up in Bangor. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with, uh, with you all here today. Seth is a, uh, a close friend of mine, a dear brother in the faith, and so it's, a, it's especially a joy to be here um, filling in for him while he's away. Um, but I'm especially excited to bring God's word to you today. So let's do that now. Let's turn or read on the screen Psalm 87. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Let's give careful attention to it together. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia entire with Ethiopia, this one was born there. And of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Both the singers and the players on instruments say, all my springs are in you. Now, turning forward to the New Testament reading to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who were near. For through him, we now have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together and ask for God's blessing on his word this morning. 
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gifts of your grace to us. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that you speak to us through it, that you give us that we might grow in our sanctification, that we might grow in our knowledge of the glory of the gospel and of our Savior. And so, Father, as we do this now, as we, as we look upon your word, we pray that you would speak to us by the power of your Spirit, Lord. Be with him who speaks it and all of us who hear it together. As your covenant people, Lord, may we see the glories of your gospel in your church. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as my sermon title uh, suggests, I'm interested in answering a particular question this morning. In this psalm, we have the assertion that glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. It's referring to, of course, Mount Zion or Jerusalem. But I ask, what's so glorious about this city? Now, if this psalm had been written in the day of Solomon's day, often considered the golden age of Israel, it probably would have been pretty easy to see why someone would write something like that. However, when you consider that this psalm was sung during and after the exile, not during Solomon's golden age when military was at an all-time high and the economy was booming, but when things were literally and figuratively falling apart, crumbling, in shambles, and Israel had become a dwarfed and humiliated nation. In that context, verse 3 kind of seems out of place. Zion? Glorious? How could you sing that, not without a little bit of irony at least? Well, the only way you can declare that is by looking forward to God fulfilling his covenant promises of being a dwelling place with his people. And so as we look at this psalm, we need to put on the lens of the New Testament. Because when we do, we see that Zion and Jerusalem point forward to the church, the final dwelling place of God. And mind you, to do this, it's not merely a legitimate application It's the way we ought to interpret the psalm as New Testament Christians. And so as we unpack the glories of Zion here in this psalm, we also need to see how profoundly this speaks to the glory of the church as well. And don't forget our context, too. Like the Israelites who would have struggled to see the glory of Zion in certain seasons, we can struggle to see the glory of the church for many reasons. Sometimes it's hard to recognize because of all the outward opposition we face, right? The culture and the world continually mock and belittle us. They say, the church is outdated. It's pathetic. It's hypocritical. And since the church actually is filled with sinners like us, and we don't always care the name of God faithfully as we would like to, It can be challenging sometimes to see why this community of people is such a grand thing in the first place. And furthermore, there's nothing outwardly especially glorious about us. We aren't walking around shining to people. I want to read a little bit of an introduction from a woman named Megan Hill. She writes this book, A Place to Belong, Learning to Love the Local Church. And listen to how she begins this book. 
She says, around the corner from where I live, a house is for sale. In bold green letters, the lawn sign reads, I'm gorgeous inside. The message is surprising. From the street, the house is thoroughly ordinary, even run down. It's a 70s-era raised ranch with dingy white vinyl siding and a location on a busy road. The roof looks like it lacks the necessary resolve to bear the weight of another winter's snowfall. The circular driveway loops around a weedy patch of grass, obviously intended for a fountain, but more likely uh, currently concealing ticks. The bushes are too big, the windows are too small, the backyard is non-existent, but the sign encourages me to believe there is something more beautiful and something more valuable about this seemingly ho-hum house that I can appreciate from the curb. The local church is a little like that house. At first glance, the house of God is unremarkable, a regular gathering of ordinary people committed to a largely invisible mission. We are young and old, male and female, single and married, unemployed and overworked. None of us is much to look at. We sing slightly off-key. We can't always clearly articulate the faith we profess. Anyone can see from our diverse personalities, our political views, parenting styles don't easily harmonize, and even our most spiritually mature members sometimes stumble into quarrels, jealousies, grumbling, and lethargy. Following worship, bad coffee, and awkward moments are served at plastic tables in a damp basement. I'm sure your coffee's good. But the church has more beauty and more value than we can see with physical eyes. We may not immediately realize it from the curb, but this house is gorgeous. So what is so gorgeous or glorious about the church? Well, we're given at least four reasons in this psalm as to why the church is so glorious. And brothers and sisters, we need to hear this desperately. We need to hear this because we so often lose sight of gospel realities that God, in his word, characterizes us by. And so everything that we're going to look at, everything about the glory of the church, as you'll see, has everything to do with the glory of the gospel. So first then, the first thing we see here as to why the church is so glorious is that because God founded it. And you see this in verse 1. This is God's initiative. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The psalmist is bringing before us an image of Mount Zion, of, of Jerusalem, with all its mountains, the mighty walls, its houses, the temple. And the first thing he says about it is that this is a place that God founded for his people. But in order to appreciate that... We need to remember the miraculous history of what God had done to bring his people there in the first place. God called a man named Abraham, a pagan moon worshiper with no heir or offspring, and he says to him, I'm going to give you descendants more numerous than the stars, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And then throughout the ages, he multiplies them, he does just that, he prospers them again and again. And when they finally get enslaved by Egypt, he miraculously delivers them through the Red Sea. He gives them his law and he organizes them as a nation. He makes another covenant with them. And eventually someone named King David comes along 
and he defeats the Jebusites. He takes Mount Zion against all odds, and then years later, builds the temple through his son Solomon, establishing Jerusalem to be the dwelling place of, of God with his people. And so Zion, as you can see, became a symbol that Israel had all the privileges of a nation being led by Almighty God himself. The one who made the heavens and the earth was on their side. No other nation could have claimed uh, that kind of relationship for themselves. But here's the thing. All these privileges are attributed to just one thing. God's initiative. God founded it. It had to be that, and only that. Because it was read in Isaiah, no one seeks after God. No, not one. And yet, God graciously seeks a people for himself who weren't seeking him. And he determined them to make him them his own. We need to recognize here how strengthening that would be for the Israelites to dwell upon it, to think upon that. Right? What security this would have given them, even in the lowest points of their history. A small nation who was surrounded and terrorized by so many national superpowers. A nation who would be singing this song while they're in exile from the Babylonians, or even when they return to build the ruins later under Persian rule. Knowing that God determined to make a people for himself by his own initiative would have given any believer confidence that he would remain faithful to his promises. John Newton, in a hymn that we're going to sing after the sermon, writes this in verse 1, Glorious things of you are spoken, Zion city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken formed you for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake your sure repose? And that's exactly what we sing about the church. God took the initiative in founding his church, not only in giving them covenants through Abraham, through Moses, through David, but also by sending his son into the world to die as a ransom for his people. And through his death, he creates and he establishes a community, a community of redeemed sinners. William Jenkin, the Puritan, he says this, that the church comes out of Christ's side in his sleep of death. You see that imagery of, of Eve coming out of Adam in his sleep? The church comes out of Christ's side in his death. We are a blood-bought people. And because of Christ's sacrifice, we're brought into the greater Zion, a greater reality. That's what Hebrews 12 gets at. It says, But you've come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you see the glory of what you and I enjoy in the heavenly Jerusalem? The heavenly Mount Zion. Blood that doesn't speak condemnation like it did for Abel. Blood that speaks peace. And do you see what security we enjoy because God founded us? 
This is what it gets at again in Hebrews 12. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We're citizens of a kingdom that will never be defeated. Not by any opposing force in this world, not by any government. Why? Because God established it. God founded it. And remember what the Lord says about this. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church was God's idea. His initiative. He founded it upon the solid rock of Jesus. And no matter what opposition you and I face in years to come, it's always going to stand. The church is glorious because God founded it. However, we also see here, too, that the church is glorious also because it's the, it's the object of God's special love. Look what it says. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. Now, before we ask, why did he love Zion more than the other dwelling places, we actually need to ask a much more fundamental question. Why did he love Zion at all? Calvin says here that the cause of God's favor of Zion is not the worth of the place itself, but the free love of God. You see, the reason that he loves Zion is the same one that he gives for loving Israel at all. In Deuteronomy 7, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. And that's what we say of the church. It was not because, O church, that you were more numerous or more attractive or flashy. It was not because you were more lovely and obedient than the rest. It was not because you were stronger or wiser than others that the Lord set his his love on you. It was because the Lord loves you. And brothers and sisters, in one sense, yes, that is deeply humbling. There is nothing that we did to merit God's choosing us. But secondly, this is deeply comforting. It's deeply comforting. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not a very good reason for the love of God. I mean, if I ask, Lord, why did you choose me? And I start go looking in myself and I sift through all the sin and the failure, I'd come out on the other side despondent. But the hope that we're given here is that the Lord loves That's the hope. The Lord loves you. It's rooted and grounded in his own unchangeable being. Let me put it this way. When anything besides the love of God is the answer for the love of God, it ceases to be hope. But his answer is, I have chosen to love you. It's free. You never merited it in the first place. Praise God. We have received the great love of God, seen in the giving of His Son. We exclusively enjoy the favor of God who works everything for the good of His people. Only the church has that joy and that assurance. We've inherited the one who's inexhaustible, an inexhaustible fountain of love. And it's aimed right at you. It's given to you. 
thirdly, though, we see another reason as to why the church is glorious. It's glorious because it's the peculiar dwelling place of God. We're not only told that the Lord loves Zion, but that he loves it more than all the dwelling places of Jacob, that is, Israel. And as you know, Jerusalem, of course, was where the temple was. And it's in the temple where God had chosen to reveal the fullness of his presence, his Shekinah glory, as they call it. And we see this dramatically in 2 Chronicles 6. If you go and read there, when Solomon prays for the temple, what does he do? It's the dedication of the temple. He prays to the Lord, and what happens? Fire comes down, consumes the sacrifice, and the temple of the Lord is filled with glory, so much that the priest can't even go in. Now, I think you and I would probably have a hard time relating to that. That sounds too miraculous. That sounds too dramatic for us to relate to, right? But I actually think that's the reason for that is because we might be forgetting the reality of what the gospel has accomplished. That God takes sinners like you and me, and he makes us a dwelling place for his Holy Spirit of glory. Stephen Marshall says that God has chosen the church as a mansion of his holiness and his honor. And this is true of us corporately and individually. When we're gathering here together for worship, you should imagine us by, like being bricks of a temple, assembling together, forming a spiritual church that God fills his, his presence with. And when you go out into the world, you take with you the indwelling Holy Spirit who lives in you. So, of course, the Lord loves Zion. Of course, he loves his church. His glory is there. He's made it his home, his special dwelling place. The church is also glorious, not just because it's a peculiar dwelling place of God. Lastly, we see here that the church is glorious because it's expansive. Look at verses 4 through 6. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registered the people. This one was born there. You know, whenever I read these verses, I always think of, I imagine the Israelites singing it, and I imagine a kid tapping his dad on the shoulder, saying, Dad, why are we singing about our enemies? How are they going to be considered one of us? It's, I mean, it's shocking. This would be like saying there will be those in Afghanistan and Iran and North Korea who are born in God's city. Uh, these serve as really illustrations in the Bible of sinful, idolatrous nations, enemies not only against Israel, but God himself. I mean, just imagine an Israelite hearing this. You've got to be kidding me. Rahab, which is a term used for Egypt, will be born in Zion? Egypt, who enslaved us for hundreds of years? Babylon, who defeated and exiled the people out of their land? Philistia, right? Israel's age-old enemy and constant thorn in their side? Tyre and Cush? Cities that represented wealth and pride, greed and covetousness? Born in Zion? 
If you read through Isaiah or Jeremiah, you get this sense of being struck at how holy and just and powerful God's judgments are against Israel, against the nations, these nations that seem totally unstoppable, his triumph over evil. But when we read this, this is like the ultimate triumph of evil. People who ought to belong to the kingdom of darkness are being transferred to the kingdom of light. They're converted. They're transformed. How is this possible? And notice, it's born in Zion. It's not just one of the surrounding tribes. It's straight out of the capital. It's hard to imagine in the days of Israelites who received such hostility, such, such oppression from these nations as to how this prophecy could possibly be fulfilled. But in another sense, a psalm like this maybe ought to be expected. Do you remember the promise to Abraham that through him and his seed, he would be a blessing to all nations? And we don't need to look farther than this room to see that. Because it's in the church that we see this fulfilled. Gentile sinners brought into the church of God by faith. That's the fulfillment of the promise in verse 5 that the, the Most High will establish her. How? Well, as we've already seen, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It establishes this new community. And that's why we read Ephesians 2. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, what happened? We were brought near by the blood of Christ, breaking down the wall of hostility, making one new man in place of the two, so that we're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. And how were we born, as it says in Psalm 87? Well, what does Jesus say needs to happen to come into this kingdom? They must be born again by the Holy Spirit. And that's what God does. He brings us to his new life, a new birth. He marks us, not by condemnation, but by grace, recording us as being his own. And when you stop and, and you consider that, you have to explain with the Apostle John, behold, what manner the love the Father has given to us, that we ourselves even us should be called the children of God. It's astonishing. I think also, secondly here, we need to see the implications this has for missions. Some have called this the uh, missionary psalm because of these verses that stick out so prominently. And this is why church budgets often reflect, can I say it this way, verses 4 through 6. There's a reason why we give thousands of dollars maybe to worldwide outreach, to missionaries, whether they be in Greece or France or Africa or China. It's an obedience to Jesus' command to make disciples of every nation, and God has given the church the task to equip and send missionaries. Because there's the expectation that God has his elect in all kinds of countries. And because of these verses, we can expect a harvest of sinners coming to Christ so that God can say, he too was born in Zion. And also her, she, she's born within the gates of my holy city. 
I ask you again, do you see the glory of that? That of God's grace that conquers over barriers of sin and hostility, extending hope to millions of people, all from different types of backgrounds. I heard a story recently from a missionary who was, uh, he's a pastor in Greece. And there was a Ukrainian couple that came to his church and they wanted to hear his preaching. He doesn't speak Ukrainian. But there was one woman in the church who could translate it a woman from Russia. And this is, of course, during the war in the past year. And there she is, a Russian, translating the gospel to a couple of Ukrainians. Wall of hostility, broken down. I also heard a story of one of my professors who was fondly remembering teaching a class, and there in the classroom, sat at the, sat at the same table, right in front and center, was an Arab and a Jew, historical enemies, sitting side by side, eager to learn more about the gospel and the word of God. The wall of hostility, broken down. See, the church of God is glorious because it's an expansive church. It's a one that extends the saving grace of God to people of all nations, breaking down the wall of hostility and reflecting the power and the beauty of God in its very diversity. All of these are reasons sufficient to show us why the church is so glorious. And as I said before, it's important for us to hear this. It's important for us to hear this in an age where Christians deeply undervalue the church. Right? We live in an age, especially in America, I have to say, of this, this conception of our faith as being me and Jesus and no one else. It's just me and Jesus. And yeah, the church, is, it's kind of this optional package that I can choose to ignore or accept that can, from time to time, help me with my walk. Or people who are often discouraged by the church saying, well, I love Jesus, I just don't like his people. As if you can have Christ without his bride. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that our greatest need is to recapture the New Testament teaching concerning the church. If only we could see ourselves in terms of it, we would realize that we are the most privileged people on earth. That there is nothing to be compared with being a Christian and a member of the mystical body of Christ. And we need to recover the sense of the glory of the church, because as said before, It has everything to do with the glory of the gospel. And that's why in verse 7, it says, There's singers and dancers alike who say, All my springs are in you. Now listen carefully. The church itself is not the gospel, but it is in the church where we find Jesus Christ, who is the source, the spring, dispensing gospel blessings to his people. Think about it. Where do you go to hear God speaking through preaching? Where do you go to be taught and built up in his word? Where do you go to be nourished and strengthened by the Lord's Supper or to be reminded of your baptism? To be supported and encouraged with your walk with God? Where do you go to be challenged in your faith? To live out the truths of the gospel with other imperfect Christians like you? 
what kind of community is filled with people gifted by the Holy Spirit for you to be blessed and benefited by? It's the church. That's where we go. And did you notice that everything that's glorious about the church in the psalm has everything to do with God, with the king of the church? What's the main attraction here at Lemington? What should it be? It's God. It's God himself. It's very easy for us to miss that, right? The temptation to define our church or any other church for that matter, right, by their strengths or their weaknesses, by a certain kind of ministry it may or may not have, by how good the music is, by how big or small the church is, whether we have a good curb appeal or not, whether we've got the right kind of outreach strategy, all good things to consider, by the way. But if we only assess a church by these things, we can be tempted to forget what it is we're actually offering the world and each other. It's Jesus Christ. He's the main attraction. And with him comes every spiritual blessing. Brothers and sisters, this is a psalm for you to sing, to read, to meditate on, to rejoice in. It's a song for you to sing when you feel discouraged about the church or by the sin and the conflict that you see and the disharmony that can sadly be true of us sometimes. But this is a song to sing because it speaks of a body of people who receives the relentless grace of God. The one who's established it and promised to work in it. To work through it as an instrument in his hand, as as missionary outposts, offering hope to every nation and person for his own glory. Glorious things are spoken of you, church. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the glory.